But FAIL, if we're going to put it as an acronym, is first attempt at learning. First attempt in learning. So let's be honest what failure is. Failure is a method of growth. I mean, I fail a lot and I do it intentionally sometimes. From Hamster Wheel Publishing, this is Blunt Dissection. I'm Dave Nicholl. On today's show, I'm delighted to be joined by squadron leader Tim Davis, a qualified fast jet instructor for the Royal Air Force. Over his 20-year career, Tim has been a frontline tornado GR4 low-level strike attack pilot before becoming a fast jet flying instructor. He served all over the world and clocked up over 2,500 flight hours. As an instructor, he flew the Hawk T2 in an advanced flying training role teaching students and instructors how to use the aircraft as a weapon system. If that doesn't mean a lot, then just think Jester or Viper in the film Top Gun. Tim has been responsible for training every frontline pilot in the RAF since 2007. At the last count, that is over 350 highly skilled operators. So I hope you're starting to get a sense of why I'm so thrilled to have him on the podcast. Plus, anyone who has successfully flown military aircraft for 20 years and says, quote unquote, I'm just into studying failure, that's kind of my thing, certainly gets my attention. Though at first glance, war and healthcare seem unlikely bad friends, there are on closer inspection, I believe, many parallels between our industries in the shape of operational risk management, safety, recruitment, and training and development. This episode is very granular. There are so many learnings woven throughout that I ended up listening to it no fewer than three times round and found myself picking up some new insight each time I did. So I strongly recommend you do the same. Now, just before we jump into the episode, I wanted to drop a quick word from today's show sponsor, which is my very own Vetex graduate mentoring community. If you are a practice owner, and you want to offer your new vets a greater level of support so they grow faster and stay longer with your practice, and dare I say it, become more profitable, then please jump onto my website, drdavenickel.com forward slash vetx, and learn how we are helping new graduates across the world thrive in practices just like yours. And with that said and done, let's get into the show. Tim was a fantastic guest, so it gives me great pleasure to bring you my conversation with one of the most experienced fighter pilots and fast jet instructors on the face of the planet, squadron leader Tim Davis. So welcome to today's podcast. I am in, I feel like I should be reaching for some sort of grid coordinate position, which I have no idea what that would be. I'm here, joined with a really cool guest today. We are at... Farnborough Airport, the home of aviation in the UK, I believe. The walls are adorned with my favourite aircraft, the Spitfire, and I'm joined by Tim Davies. Tim, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. So, Tim, we start. We usually start just by giving some background to you. So I will let you paint the picture. Tell us about your background and tell us about your life, your career. You can go back as far or as recent as you like. Right. So I'm just coming to the end of a 20-year career of flying and teaching on military fast jets with the Royal Air Force. 
I joined the Navy back in 98, spent five years there. And then as I transferred or about transferred onto the Sea Harrier, um, we lost that, it was decommissioned. So the Air Force took about eight or nine of us across and ended up flying something called the Tornado GR4, which was uh, a bomber based out of Scotland. And I did a few years on that. And then I went to a place called RF Valley, where I taught on the Hawk T1, which is what the Red Arrows use. After a brief stint after that in Afghanistan, I taught on something called the Hawk T2, which is an upgraded version. And I did that for the last five years, and then I realized that I needed to do something else. When you joined the military and the Navy, were you joining as a, like as, as an aviator in the yeah. Navy? Or? Yeah, so you can join the Navy as a pilot, yep. or you can join as a warfare officer, uh, or an engineering officer, or supply officer. And I happened to join as a pilot. I had an engineering degree at the time from the University of West of England, Bristol. Yep. And uh, so they wanted me as an engineering officer, and I just wanted to fly airplanes. So I was lucky enough that they, um, they were obviously desperate and they took me, which is great. <laughs> I, I'm well, well, reasonably well acquainted with the tornadoes growing up right next to RAF lookers, and they transitioned yeah. from phantoms to tornadoes. That's right, yeah, definitely. No, nobody was in any doubt at all that a new aircraft had arrived. Yeah, yeah, it would be, yeah. They were great. Like, I knew the flight pass in and out of that place and used to geek out for many of the time. So, really, this interview is just about me living vicariously through your career. Scratching an edge, that's okay. <laughs> now, actually, the, and a fascination that I've had, and, and anybody that's seen me speak would know this, is my comparison, and the comparison was born, actually, by a fantastic writer called Atul Gawande, a medical writer who liked to make comparison between the medical industry, human medical industry, and the airline industry in regards to how each managed risks, how managed yeah. uh, development, um, managed ego. And actually, Atul's comment was that one of the industries managed those, the other one didn't really right. manage yeah. them very well That's at right. all. And so my fascination was born with how we can learn better from other industries how to manage those things with inventory medicine. So it was wonderful. I was introduced to your podcast by a good friend of mine, Sandy Baird. And he said, look, I should listen to this guy, Tim, and what he's writing about and talking about. And so I, I did and, and thought it was awesome stuff. So I'm super excited for us to have this conversation. And probably it's a, a good place just to, to begin, Tim, would be... And you can tell any stories you like to tell, but I think the first place would be process and procedure. You know, there are so many fights happen in medicine about how clinical freedom is something that the veterinarians cherish greatly. And so people want to be able to do the thing that's in their brain. And often that's the thing that they were first taught by their first boss. And then they'll take that through them with their, in their career. And God save you if you try and teach them something different, like you're going to create sure. some sort of war in doing that. How do things operate in the military and the Air Force to standardize, or is there standardization? How do you manage, I guess that the, qual the question is really about how do you manage quality? Yeah. And maybe no, that's, that's a weird question to ask no, somebody where it's a the, No, we don't the have the, the wars that you're talking about. Right. So we... Ego wars. Egos on a squadron, on any squadron... Uh, whether it's a typhoon squadron, tornado squadron, red arrow squadron, whatever it might be, you're a lion amongst other lions. Now, we have women as well. The Air Force is 14% women. And women in the Air Force now is the only service that's open. Any job in the service is open to women. You want to be a regiment officer, you want to be a gunner, you can be that if you're a woman. So we're very proud of that in the Royal Air Force. So um, when you're on a squadron, you're one of many lions. Now, your life is in the hand of the other lions. Don't get me wrong. Ego doesn't have a place on a squadron. It, I've never seen it, to be honest with you. When have I seen ego in the fast jet world? I, 
maybe in the training when guys are training to fly fast jets, but it's stamped out. There is no ego. Ego is about insecurity and you can't be insecure if you're going to fly a 30 million pound airplane. It doesn't happen. Our students don't have egos. They might go home at the weekend and tell their mum or their girlfriend how great it is to be a jet pilot, but there's humility when they come and fly these airplanes with the people they fly with. Um, there has to be because people die. How do you get rid of the ego and where does the humility then come from? How do you foster that? So I realise I haven't answered your question about the uh, standards as well. Subvert no, that's away fine. from the area. So, uh, I'll exactly. make notes so we can come back. Yeah, exactly. So I can talk about standards and standardisation in a minute as well if you want to. Yeah. So with the humility, it comes from obviously effective leadership at all levels. Yeah. And some people, as they stay in the service too long, I've left the service at a time when I was very happy to be in. So I'm not bitter leaving the service. I could have stayed in. There's things about the service I don't like. Crikey, of course there is, absolutely. Things I couldn't change, and it's probably good that I couldn't change those things. So there's an understanding that um, you're working as a team. And this is interesting because there's two types of teams. There's a team of champions or there's a championship team. On a squadron, it's a team of champions because every pilot is quite individual. Although they work within a team structure, it's not like Manchester United where that football team has lots of champions within it, but it is a, it is a champion team. You see what I mean? So it's, yeah. it's slightly different. So you have people with you you like and people that you're, you're not as fond of, but genuinely, the best way to say this is that everyone is very, very similar and that's why they get on. Not only are they selected by the service to do that, not only are they trained by the service once they're in to do that, over a period of about five years, remember, but they've also self-selected. So when they've come out of school, they've decided they want a life of conformity. Yeah. Or that extent. They probably don't know what that means at the time, but they want to, you know, they understand, they've seen the pictures of what it means to be a military officer or whatever it might be. Of course. So really, you're not in a world where there are going to be people that you don't get on with. Yep. I, I really, I cannot honestly tell you. And if I, if I was chatting to my wife, whatever, and I said... I don't know whether there's anyone I don't like that I've worked with that I don't actually get on with. There are people that might rub you up the wrong way, but just, that's just life, right? I mean, you go and live and die with these people and it's, you're more than happy to. The character Maverick, I've long thought was probably a myth and that sort of character would not exist or be permitted to exist um, within the military. Maverick being from Tonga, yeah, of course, yeah. is not access no, in I that movie. I think you're right. I mean, one of the, my, my wife would always say, Someone would ask her what it's like being married to a fast jet pilot and she would talk about the thermal underwear we have to... You know, it's not as if you're playing volleyball in a beach with dog tags. It doesn't happen. We're all a little bit podgy. What are you saying? I'm not. I'm losing some weight. No, um, we're all a little bit... You know, it's not like that. We're not lifting massive weights. You haven't got time. You're tired. Yeah. It's um, a very cerebral activity and it's very physically demanding. Yeah. So obviously we do have to go to the gym. We have to keep the necks working because of the G-forces and everything else. That character, Maverick, I don't think he'd exist on a squadron in that uh, who have I I mean crikey if anything he's just a man that wants to explore and push boundaries yeah they talk about straight you know the envelope don't the edge of the envelope and this yes. kind of thing it's an American term it's not a term we use necessarily but I've seen people before that have tried to stretch that boundary but they're brought back in again and this takes us around to your standardization question yeah because we have standard operating procedures yeah and they exist at all levels in the military because if you're killed then the guy beneath you needs to know what your job is so he can do it yeah they're very well defined everyone knows what they are everyone reads them there's a lot of books on the squad and you have to have a working knowledge of which I'm yep. it's very same in medicine I would have thought yes I've read Atoll's book on uh, was it mortality I think which is a very interesting one of course Matthew Syed he's written a lot I think he wrote Bounce about the comparisons between medicine and aviation, which was no surprise to us in the aviation business, of course. I mean, <laughs> my sister's a doctor, and uh, some of the stories she comes out with, I'm, I'm surprised. I th- it's probably down to the fact, like in medicine, there's different trusts, and if you go from one trust to another trust now, it's not the same, is it, that like you were doing? I think it's quite amateurish for people not to develop and grow and have a growth mindset as they go through their careers. Yeah. 
in aviation, we do grow. And as we go from one squadron to another, we know that the SOPs are very similar, which is why I could go and fly in Saudi now with yep. other jet pilots I've never met before. And the boundaries are relatively similar. The direction yep. we're going in is relatively similar. Yep. We know what kills people and we know how to stay in our stretch zone, comfort, stretch, panic, so that we are growing as individuals. But we know that to go into the panic is to kill people. So that's what standard operating procedures do for us. And when you say kill people, you actually mean people on your own On our team. own side. Yeah, that's yeah. the bad thing. You don't want to kill people on your own side. No. Because that doesn't work very well. <laughs> it's best to kill the other people. Right. I'm going to stick with the procedures. I'm just going to make a little sidebar note here. Comfort, stretch, panic. Because that's a really interesting... That's that You've just, I think, squished down the whole learning process in a high-pressure situation into three words, which I would like to unlock those a little bit more. How granular... One of the challenges that I have always faced in getting people in medicine to agree to procedures is actually how you even set about doing these. And, and a previous guest on the podcast, Peter Weinstein, talked about just getting some basic rules on the page. And most of these don't exist in medicine, somewhat embarrassingly. And that is when a patient walks into the exam room what is our minimum standard of care for somebody that presents with, or an animal presenting with drinking too much water? Like, what should we minimally do? Like, you can go above that standard, but what do we actually have to do? And of course, money comes into it, and a lot of vets then are concerned about the other person having enough money to do anything. So that's where we're at, like even getting those on the board. And then I asked Peter, how granular do you get, and how do you, you go down? I'm imagining in, in the Air Force, it gets granular to the nth degree. It does. So do, how a topic, can you give us an idea of yeah, sure. a flow down of how a standard operating procedures might work for yeah. top level? And then I, I guess there are levels beneath that. So you have different orders. Yep. So we have group orders. For yep. example, there's three groups in the Air Force. I worked in 22 groups which is the training group. They would have group orders. Training group orders, that's what they're called. And within that, we'll, we'll, we'll show you what squadron structure should look like, in effect, yep. with the boss, three flight commanders, whatever it might be. And it will go into some detail at a high level. Yep. Coming down from that, you'd have station orders. Yep. And the station orders are put out from a station commander. He might be responsible for anything between two to 10,000 people. Yep. Actually, 10,000, much less than that, sorry, about two or 3,000 people. But um, a lot of them are civilians, of course. And station orders will also direct policy on station. And then yep. within the station, of course, you'll have squadrons. And the squadrons aren't all flying squadrons. They could be training squadrons. They could be Royal Air Force Regiment squadrons. And so each squadron then, the squadron boss, will have the squadron orders. Squadron operating procedures, squadron orders, there's other documents that we'll have as well. Now, when it comes down to flying, of course, it does get very granular because it has to. And so if we're looking at, there's something called airmanship, for example, which you might have something similar in medicine, which is a general understanding of what you should and shouldn't do. For example, I remember one of my pilots did something that was not professional. I think he, he literally flew into the airfield at an incorrect height and he, he just pulled the land and it was fine. But someone saw it and they said, you're supposed to be a thousand feet, you're at 500. And he said, oh, I thought I was, I thought 500 was, was okay. Well, that wasn't in the orders. The orders said it was a thousand. So if yep. he was familiar with that station's orders, he would have seen that. Got it. Now a boss would speak to that person and say, look, you need to be familiar with his orders. And you obviously weren't. And so as opposed to coming in at the same height, you would come in all, all the rest of the time, you decided to come in at a different height and you breached these orders. Yep. But this is what airmanship, airmanship would dictate. If you went to a different base and you were going to land your airplane, you'd think, what do most people fly at? A thousand yep. feet. Yep. I'll just do a thousand feet. That's what airmanship is all about. It's looking at the what ifs and the actions on and what would happen if this happened. And the problem with airmanship, so this isn't something that you can write down airmanship. Airmanship is like seamanship. 
Yep. Uh, it's like roadcraft. My, my father was a traffic officer, police officer. So roadcraft, yep. it's, uh, it's just leaving enough distance in front of you for the, the car ahead, all these kind of things. Yep. You only get that through experience. Yes. So in aviation, what we say is you've got two buckets when you start off. So my students, when I put them out to the front line on typhoons and they go and fly over northern, northern Africa or over Syria or somewhere, they're trying to fill that experience bucket before the luck one runs out. Right. And the people that die don't do that. Okay. And I've heard you talk about this on your show, your podcast. And I, that was actually a pretty moving episode that you published. Which one was that? The experience bucket and the luck bucket. Right, okay. Can you give us a little more, give us more detail on that or examples of... Okay, yeah. So it's really easy to kill people in these airplanes. Yep. And we do. Yep. Because as I spoke about with the comfort stretch panic, we have to, there's no training value in living in the comfort zone. Yep. We call right. it the comfort zone. The okay. comfort zone is you walking into your clinic, yep. you treating the, the patients that come in and nothing challenging happens right. and you don't challenge yourself. I do vaccinations all day long yeah. and I refer anything exciting whatever to is your default, else. Whatever is your low level default right. of work. And then you go home, you watch TV, you go to bed, you don't do any reading or anything like that. We don't like to be challenged in these individuals. It's, it's, we don't like it, do we? Of course, why would we want to be challenged? Because we could um, highlight our inefficiencies or inabilities and everything yes. else. So we have to push our students continuously into their stretch zone. Okay. The problem is, when you push someone into their stretch zone, you need to monitor. Yeah. Because if they are not dealing with that very well, they will end up in the panic. Right. And I, an example might be that you might um, send a student off on a solo trip around Wales. Yep. The weather's great when he gets airborne, but he gets a bit worse around the, the route. So right. he's stretched anyway. He's in an airplane by himself, et cetera, et cetera. And then as he goes into some poor weather, he then enters the panic zone. And that's when people die. And you're doing low-level flight training in valleys there. Yes, so that's there's right. a yeah, big yeah. chance of flying into a wall. So, so 250 feet is the level they fly at. Yep. Um, and that's the height of the telegraph pylons outside your house yes um, but we have to expose them to that we have to expose them because that's where growth happens yes to not expose and the air force now has gone into what we call a medium level air force um which sits around 20 30 40 000 feet so we are losing that low level but we still use the low level environment because that's where the stretch really happens okay and you're losing the low level because technology's gone a certain direction that you don't have to have that risk yeah, anymore so within the air force yeah, i mean I'm actually got to, I've got to write an article for a magazine soon about the benefit of low level and I've written an article before about red flag in America which is a big American exercise and the truth about low level and you can see it on the map on the map there's a, a map on the wall in the room we're in and it shows the uh, the western coast of the uh, the United States and it shows the mountain ranges coming down from are those Sierra mountain ranges I think they are from Montana all the way down yep. through to Mexico and that's where Nevada is out there as well and when you are targeted by surface to air missile systems or other enemy aircraft yep. missiles don't fly through rock Right. So everyone, all the medium level players like me, so you're flying in 20, 30,000 feet, you're trying to drop your bombs from that height. But when you start getting engaged by the F-16s, F-15s, you roll inverted and you pull and you hide in those mountains. Right. So we know there's a benefit. It's costly to train. Right. And it annoys people because it's loud. Yeah. So some senior people realize that actually how, uh, they're asking what value is it now? We're not low level over Syria. We're not low level over Iraq or Afghanistan. You can be, but we're not. We're more medium level because we've got saturated airspace. We have, you know, this is the thing. We don't need to be at low level. Yep. And that's why we're losing it from that environment. But we still train in it. And I still think it's important to train in that environment as well. But How do you manage, when you're pushing your pilots into stretch, how do you monitor that? And what sort of, Safety and how do you mitigate the risk of that? It's fine. Yeah, we've got so they've got training folders. Yeah, when they come on the squadron, the training folder we look at when they before they come on the squadron, they've already been through three flight training schools and initial officer training. So 
am I wrong there? Well, it's two now. So they've gone through elementary and basic flying training, and we're advanced on the right. Hawk. Right. After our advanced training, uh, they then go on to the frontline airplanes, Typhoon, F-35, Tornado, GR4. Yep. So this is fast jet training. Obviously, there's rotary and there's multi-engine, and we don't talk about them. My brother was a multi-engine pilot, whatever. Not interested. He goes and flies around at slow speeds. But so these guys come in. So they come in with a training folder from the previous flight school. Interestingly enough, if they and this is a bit of a, a sidebar here, if they haven't failed a sortie up until the moment they come to us, we'll probably fail a sortie very early on. We can fail them for pretty much anything. Yep. Look out, you know, anything at all. So, and the reason we do that is because if we leave it too late and then they start failing at the end of the course, mentally they may go into a dark place, we can't get them back. Okay. So we need to know that they can deal with failure because on the front line, there's going to be a lot of failure in their lives. Yeah. And we need to know that they can pick themselves up. They're self-starters. We need to build resilience into them. Okay. So, Come back to your question then. They have training folders. We can open the training folder, see their previous experience. We pre-brief every sortie. And in that pre-brief for the sortie, we've looked at the previous sortie. We've looked at the debrief for that. We've looked at the tick sheet. There's a, a sheet we write out for every single sortie. So now we're looking at uh, scoring. We do score them, but it's, it's just a metric really to see that they're, they're doing all right. It's zero to five. And most guys get threes and the guy gets a four. So we do that. We have a look at them. What, and if, what's sorry. the pass mark? Well, we have formative and summative. So the syllabus is broken into phases. It's about, I think the whole school is about 13 phases, air combat, navigation, instrument flying, whatever it might be, formation. They can, on the new scoring system we have and the new construct, they can have twos. A zero is is a fail, a one is a fail, a two is a pass. On the formative sorties, there might be seven sorties in a particular phase, like instrument flying. They can get twos on all of those if they want to, but the last one needs to be summative, which means they need to get a three. They've got to get a three. If they get a two, we refly it. Right. So people can fail. And we, it's not that we encourage failure because we don't, yep. but the levels we work at, it's going to happen probably. Yep. Yep. And then we look at the scores. And a guy that's getting twos throughout, but passing threes at the end, that's a pass. That will give you a typhoon copy right there. Yep. The guy that's getting fours and, and he's doing really well, again, he's probably going to go onto a typhoon. You know, this is the thing because this is the only aircraft we're putting guys onto at the moment. We've put some guys on F 35, but the tornado isn't taken anymore. That's how we grade them. And then, um, of course, we can then see also. We're employing people with high emotional intelligence. Do you recruit for that specifically in the, in the testing no, phases? I wouldn't have said in the initial officer, in the recruitment process, in the interviews, it's probably the panel are probably looking for an understanding of what self-belief is, confidence, and this mm. kind of, everything else that will go into this. An ability to review your own performance is exceptionally important, especially as these guys are in cockpits by themselves. Yeah. And I flew in a twin-seat cockpit. I had a, I had a weapons officer as well. Yep. And I loved that, by the way. Yep. So when you go into Badlands, having someone else there, when it gets busy, and it is very busy, dividing that workload up makes that tornado a very, very powerful weapon system. Yep. So that I, I did enjoy that. But now we put guys in the cockpits by themselves, the F-35 and the Typhoon. So we need to know these guys, are, and these girls especially, are honest. They have high levels of integrity. Um, excellence is something that they need to strive for, yep. as well as all the respect and everything else. So... Yep. It will be part of that process of bringing them into the service, I would have thought. Okay. Now, resilience is a really hot topic. Yes. I'm sure it's not just in veterinary medicine. and, and no, Clearly, no. any pressure job, resilience is a big deal. And so you talked about failure there. How do you foster that learning through failure? And, I mean, you've talked about how you, you, know, you mitigate the risk to degree. But we both work in industries where eventually, you know, you have to fly fast in places that are dangerous and release weapons. And we have to cut things that bleed. 
and there's no substitute for actually doing those things that can train you like anything like a, a training environment could. How do you, of course, failure is a natural part of growth. How do you manage that sort of impact on the people that you're responsible for training? And how do you, like, if, what's the typical cycle that a pilot will go through from failure? Or is there a typical cycle? Yeah, there is. Yeah. So we have remedial action, it's called. I think the, the key with failure is to understand that it happens to everyone. And if you know someone that doesn't happen to, they're lying to you. It's just a fact. Or they're not growing as an individual. So you can stagnate if you want to and not fail. And you'll be there as an average vet doing vaccinations all day, as you say. By staying in your comfort zone. Absolutely. Yeah, of course yep. it is. If you want to develop and grow and be something and be somebody more important and contribute of someone of value, help other people out and be a, a humble human being with a, with a great life and, and be very content with yourself, which is what we all want, of course. We want to be content in our lives. Then you will have to embrace that stretch. And with that stretch will come failure. Yep. But fail, if we're going to put it as an acronym, is first attempt at learning. First attempt in learning. So let's be honest what failure is. Failure is a method of growth. I mean, I fail a lot and I do it intentionally sometimes. And with our students, what I used to do is I used to come back from, I used to be, if you remember Viper and Jester and Top Gun, so they were the, the hostile guys, weren't they? They were in the yep. A4 Skyhawks. Yep. Well, that was my job on the squadron. I used to yep. go up there and I used to have students turn in from seven miles as a pair and I used to have to fight them. And I used to have to watch what they were doing over my shoulder when we're upside down and we're turning around and, and all this. I stopped flying in October last year, by the way, because I'm leaving the service now. But that was my job. And I used to come down sometimes from these trips when I knew some of the students had been struggling. And the first thing I would do in the debrief that I'd run would say, I'd make up an error that I'd made. I'd make up something. I'd say, guys, I forgot to check my fuel. And I, when you called this fuel level, I hadn't checked my fuel. It wasn't true. Of course it wasn't. But I would say that because I wanted them to be able to be honest and open in the debrief as well, knowing that they'd failed in some aspects of the sortie. Yep. And they could see then that there was someone above them who's 20 years more senior. And that person was able to embrace failure. Yeah. So the problem that we do have sometimes in these industries is some of these senior people don't do that. Right. They don't allow it because they don't do it themselves. They hide this and that promotes bad practice. Okay. And we don't promote bad practice when we're flying 30 million pounds for taxpayers' money. <laughs> Does blame exist within the Air Force? And it, blame is a toxic issue through veterinary medicine. I'm yeah. sure it is through yeah. medicine as well. Yeah, yeah, it is. Medicine definitely. Where, yeah. uh, which at, and at the root cause from what I've seen is poor leadership at the top. What does blame, what does blame achieve when you blame someone? Other than it makes you feel better. Everybody makes you feel better, yeah. but makes everyone else feel better. And better. it's great, isn't it, when you can point to someone and say, it was him. It's like going back to when we were seven. Right. You can say, it was him, it wasn't me, it was him. Now, what doesn't happen in the military? It yeah. doesn't, because I'm interested in him doing well or her doing well. Yeah. I don't want to blame her for something. I want to help her not do what's happened before, understand why it's happened. Right. So we, we have a just culture, yep. we call it. We uh, talk about mistakes, we talk about errors. The Most of the errors or mistakes, most of the things that happened that you'd say were bad or, or whatever it might be, or, or mistakes or things that you blame people for, happen for organizational gain, not individual gain. So if someone, uh, I remember a sort I did last year where I ran my fuel to the point where, you know, I landed with exactly the figure, but we should have a bit of a buffer and I didn't. And I remember the boss came and spoke to me, I was flying part-time and he said, you know, you're pushing that fuel now. Now I can push that fuel. I can use all that fuel. I had to come back with a throttle idle and glide back into, you know, that sort of stuff. But I did it because I wanted the sortie to be achievable. It was his sortie, by the way. It was the boss's sortie. He was learning as well. I needed to get that last run in. So that was an organizational game. So there's no, 
he would say he'd recalibrate. Are you happy with what you're doing? Are you pushing it too much? Are you in too much in the office in, in the town I was in as opposed to you know, working part-time on the jet? If you've got the balance right, but it's not a blame as such. It's just saying it's an understanding. Because if you blame someone, you can't learn from that person. They're going to become defensive straight out. Absolutely. Whereas if you say to them, can we sit down and talk about why this happened? Yep. Then they go, oh, yeah, you know what? I'm not doing great at home. The wife's going to leave me, whatever it is. Or I want to be a better vet. And I think this is the way to do it. Or I want more money. And then you can address yep. those issues. So it's not a no blame culture, it's a just culture in the service. We're a team of people. And because of that, there's no point you blaming half a squadron for for doing something wrong. You're on the same squadron. You're identified by the people that you work with. You know and I know that you are the same as the five people we spend the most time with. Absolute fact. Negative people, you'll become negative. Positive people, you'll become positive. Wealthy, we know this. So the squadron is more powerful as a whole than as an individual. That's why we don't tend to go into the the blame, which is toxic. And it sounds like so nothing's off limits, right? Like, and it's, is there, is the culture then one of, you know, you should openly expect feedback. Yes. Because there's little growth, possibly no growth without it. Yeah. You can expect to be challenged when things like your fuel. Absolutely. I do expect that. Yeah, of course I do. Yeah. And and actually there would be something wrong if that weren't challenged. Absolutely. There'll be a, that'll be a toxic squadron that you would not want to be on. Someone's going to die. Absolutely. No two ways about it. And I've seen, I have been involved with toxic squadrons in the past where people have died. Yep. And a lot of it is to do with the fact that the feedback wasn't wasn't there. Have you got a favourite a favourite time that you failed that you learned from that really was this jumps out at you? Yes, and, and I'll tell you why because your your listeners can go and read this essay. And this essay got published in I think Virgin Australia magazine and some other places. And I, I'm not remunerated for any of this stuff because I'm in the service another two months. So this I, I write a lot of content. All my content's free. And it was a failure. There's a woman called Diane Vaughan who wrote a book about the Challenger disaster. And she coined the term normalization of deviance. It's about deviant practice. And you'll see deviant practice in your veterinary. I know it's in the medical world. My sister talks about it. It's, people don't wake up in the morning going to work to be malicious. Right. No one does that. It's, well, maybe criminals or whatever, but you know, people don't. They try and do a good job. That's right. But they get eroded over time and eventually they end up doing a job. You know, and it takes someone maybe to come in and say, no, that's not, I didn't think we're supposed to do that. And that's what, by the way, if you don't have standard operating procedures, that can happen because what you've learned in one clinic isn't going to be acceptable in another. Right. So um, I was in a, I was on an exercise in Belgium in a town called Floren, and uh, it was an airbase there. It was called the Tactical Leadership Program. And I was on a Northern Tornado Squadron up in Lossiemouth. And a friend of mine, Pete and I, We'd both taken a couple of uh, weapon systems officers with us, good friends of ours. We were very, well, I say young, we had about 700 hours of jet flying time. And we took two tornadoes and some engineers across to Florian in Northern Belgium. The weather there's quite misty and poor. And then for the two weeks, we'd learn about composite air operations and working with the Italians and the French. And so there are other jets on the line. There were Jaguars, there were some Harriers, F-16s. There was a tanker, I believe, and there were some other things. And it's quite, a, it's quite a big exercise. It's a mini red flag. Right. Red flag is big. And, and people die. Red dial. flag is joint operations yeah, training exercises. all over the world. You go to America in the Nevada desert, you fly out of Nellis, and uh, they just try and kill you for two weeks. They build up slowly, but people die. And my flag was at night, which made it a lot worse. But it is as close as you're ever going to get to the first days of a war. It's worse than that, in fact. It's, it's designed to be, but in a controlled environment. Yeah. Pressure in controlled environments. Okay, and that, that's how you learn. You're definitely in your stretch zone. And TLP in Belgium, again, you're in your stretch zone, but much smaller because you're a baby pilot. You've probably only been a year and a half on the squadron, maybe two. Most squadron tours are three and a half years, three years. So I'm out there with this guy, Pete, and uh, we had an agreement. 
And it's a day exercise. You do some planning in the morning, fly in the afternoon, fly around France and Germany, and people try and shoot you down and you try and bomb your targets. It's great fun. In the evening, you go and sample the local ales. We had an agreement because we only got the two jets out there. If your jet breaks, you stay with your jet because jets do break. Yeah. And we know that. And in the beginning of the second week, my jet broke. So I didn't like that agreement. I was like, Pete, give me a jet. But of course, he's got to do the exercise. So um, I got airborne. The reason, I, the reason I say it is I got airborne. I tried to select the undercarriage up, the, the gear up, the wheels up. And uh, I had a, a red light remaining, which meant that the, it'd come up, but the door hadn't closed, which I've got speed limitations now. I need to be at 450 knots. I can only go on to 230, you know, so I can't participate in exercise. So I've got to burn off six tons of fuel. I go through the emergency drills for the gear and I've got to land back in Belgium, which is exactly what I did. I landed back after about 40 minutes and I didn't take part in the exercise. Engineers had a look at my airplane and they said, you know what, there's significant wear on the undercarriage leg. You know, like a big airliner, you know, that it's not going to lock up for you if you're sitting at 1G, you know. They said, but the only thing we can suggest if you can bunt a little bit and go a bit negative G, you might be able to lock it up. So we got airborne. I tried that and, and it locked up. You put the nose up a little bit, a nice clear day and a little bit of a bunt over the top and the gear locked up and then we carried on the exercise and we did that day and that worked. Got back, the engineer said, yeah, there's a bit more wear, but if, as long as you bunt a bit, you can see where this is going now. The gear should lock up. Okay, so we did. I had to take a nose, higher nose attitude this time. And this is a 26-ton airplane. This isn't light. I've got bombs on and fuel on and... A lot of fuel on, in fact, seven and a half tons of fuel. So I, I point about 30 degrees nose up and I push forwards and, you know, zero G and travel the gear. And, and I'm, I'm the nose comes through the horizon, but the gear locks up. We carry on the exercise. This seems to work. This is the problem. It's a deviant practice. It seems to work. Engineers are like, brilliant. Your jet works. Even my buddy Pete was like, yeah, it works. There was an F-16 pilot in the bar that night that said to me, what are, what are you guys doing on takeoff? Because everyone watches everyone else get airborne, of course. And I said, oh, there's a problem with the undercarriage. And of course... I can't fly if it doesn't lock up. And he says, oh, it just looks a bit odd because your jet is a heavy jet. I said, yeah, I know it does. What he was doing there, of course, was intervention. Right. And of course, I, I ignored that because I wanted to achieve because we're winners, aren't we? We want to achieve and we're idiots like that. The next day, similar thing happened, but this time it took longer to travel and I had to, the gear to come up and I had to keep the nose going over and it, it kind of pointed below the horizon a little bit. And I, I remember thinking, well, my navigator said, well, that was a bit, closer like, yeah fine but then the then the last day of the exercise came and we'd been asked to um go and speak to the exercise coordinator but if we we're going to do this one sorting then we're going to fly back to england reckon we can get away we're not doing that because I, I think i knew he was going to speak about it. this this jet pointing up in the sky and then pointing down at the ground <laughs> jeez i was a child back then anyway so um that's <laughs> child i think i was 32 crikey so uh, i uh what i do yes the problem is the cloud base had come down on the last day of the exercise and it was going to be quite tight to to get this in but if we didn't get it in of course we couldn't go home so of course i got the nose up i put the reheat in got i got airborne got the nose really high up in the sky and as i started pushing over it went into cloud now this is the problem i don't mind being in cloud we can be in cloud but the jet i've got to get the gear up and the nose is coming down and you don't see the horizon there is no horizon i've got a hud a head-up display and the lines are moving quite quickly and my nav says that's 1200 feet tim there's the nose calls the horizon and then he says that's a thousand i said it's not coming up the gear's not coming it's not locked up and he says well, that's nine that's eight seven and he says that's 600 feet and we're 40 degrees nose down on a 26 ton airplane in fast jet language that's a bad place to be there's a breakaway cross in my head up display there's alarms going off saying pull up pull up and i have to literally pull the jet as hard as i can pop out a bottom of cloud face full of fields it must have looked awful from the control tower but i think we bottomed up at about 200 feet and we're lucky not to be killed outside of ejection envelope 
by the way, as in those came through, everyone thinks the ejection seat's going to save you. It, it doesn't. The seat yep. comes out, rockets come out, but you've still got a vector. So I think that's when I was fast. And we were lucky to get away with it. Okay. The gear never came up. We just flew home with the gear unlocked. 230 knots, a bit embarrassing. And I wrote that up as a flight safety report. That's another thing we do. Yep. We have an open, honest reporting culture. Yes. We write about this. We help um, publish it. Everyone can see it all around the world, uh, well, especially in the, in the military. And I wrote about that. And now that's got me interested really in human factors and crew resource management and everything else. Did the Belgian pilot, was it, was it a Belgian pilot? It was actually, uh, no, it was an American okay. F-16 pilot. There were two Americans there, one Republican, one Democrat. Lovely guys, hated each other. <laughs> we used to wind them up all the time. It's brilliant. No, one of those guys. And what he was saying was absolutely correct. He what did was, he say? How did that conversation go? Did he just casually just, you know... Yeah, he's like, what are you guys doing? Yeah. Um, because you're interested in each other's aircraft, and I sat in F-16s and played with the Jags and stuff. You're interested in what each... The problem is, you will build in deviant practice if you're unchallenged. And, of course, I learn, and we do after that, we learn, especially in the Air Force now, this is what I teach, that the best person to challenge you is yourself. But that takes a great deal of integrity and honesty, transparency, openness, all these words that we might use but don't really understand what they mean. Yeah. That's the thing I'm pushing out is yeah. that's where the value lies. That's what he was saying. He was just like, he, he should have said, what the hell are you guys doing? Yeah. That's ridiculous. You guys are in a 26 ton jet. You're going to kill yourselves. But we'd all had a few beers and he was just nudging me a little bit. That's what he was doing. He's just saying, what is that? What are you guys, you know, you're you right. That's what he's saying. Are you all right? And we don't challenge people enough, do we? And the alternative there was what? You, you had to pack up and go home because you didn't have the equipment to yeah, fix we'd it. Have to, yeah, we'd have to bin the exercise early. And in fact, what actually happened was there was another aspect to this. We were the only aircraft, um, well, the only two aircraft, the two tornadoes, the two British tornadoes at the time were the only two aircraft that entered the second week without being shot down by the Red Air, yep. by the Jesters and the Vipers, yep. which were F-16s, I believe, from Italy and, and some other countries. That Their job was to hunt us down and kill all the ground attack stuff, yep. and which we were. And so people were looking at us as we entered the second week. And, and then we were being purposely targeted as well by the Red Air, being hunted down. Yep. And I remember I ran for a good 15 minutes from one of these aircraft right to the edge of the area and hit behind a rock and managed to hit my target. So we were very good at this. Yeah. Very good at avoiding being shot down. And we wanted to carry on that. Yeah. So there's another pressure there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's always, we call it the, the holes in the cheese lining up. The break in the chain. So we always try and break the chain. That's how we call it. Yeah. The links in the chain, every deviant thing you do is another link in that chain. That's right. And we could probably put that into, say, a, a vet practice by people turning up maybe late, maybe not taking the correct money of someone or not knowing that someone's actually booked in or not booking them in properly and then you know, double booking them the next day. All these things add up to poor practice. And, and uh, this is exactly what we find in the Air Force. We look for these things on purpose. That's every complaint I've ever been asked to investigate. And one in particular where the wrong animal was operated on. Right everything that lined up was a deviant practice that had crept in yeah yeah and then just blind luck it, op- it exposed the system to a blind luck moment amazing and the blind luck moment was two black cats that, that actually didn't look that identical beyond the black cat but got put in the same kennels next to each other and yeah. their cards got mixed up but i was thinking about his tumblers on a lock and behind the door is chaos or you know all of the bad stuff that might happen absolutely so this brings us to risk management, really. is about thinking through the risk points in any yes. system and going, what can we do to minimize or mitigate that risk? Yeah, so I call it inversion technique. In fact, my latest essay, I've written it in that, only because people have found that really useful on LinkedIn. I talk about Seneca, Marcus Aurelius, 
what the Stoics in effect, they used to call something called, they used to do something called the inversion technique. And what that, what they'd look at is, we call it what ifs in the Air Force, the army called actions on. What Seneca would say, whatever would be, the Stoics would say is, um, what would happen if my house burnt down tomorrow? So let's, let's put myself in tomorrow. I've now gone back home to my house and it's burnt to the ground. What should I have really, all my insurance documents are stored in my house. I didn't even know to call. Who do I, who's my insurance company? I didn't know who my insurance company is, and you know what I mean? But I know that I've got the documents online now. So my house burns down, I can go and get them online. And so they, they put these things, you know, what if, uh, what if I have a road accident? You know, how do I get to work? They're thinking about these things before they are forced to think about these things. So everything that we do in JETS is planned and prescripted. And the latest essay was about not reacting, but responding. To react is to die. If you react to something into a, in a jet, you, you do die. Okay. There is no reacting. If you hit a bird, you leave the throttle alone. You don't touch that engine. You just ease away from the ground because the birds make a huge amount of damage at 500 miles an hour. So, and we brief that. What if we hit a bird at this point on the route? Where are we going to go? What if we hit a bird on this point? Where are we going to go? And so in, in that situation, I'm, I'm thinking now of two air incidents, one being the Qantas jet that it wasn't a bird strike, it was a QS seal broke. QS-32, that's right. Yeah. yeah, seal broke and the Rolls-Royce engine and Destroyed blew itself. out the avionics. And yes. They had no idea what it blew out. And then also, so I'll come back to the second example is probably the more famous one with Sully and the jet yeah. he landed on the Hudson. Yeah. And they just flew straight in the, in the QF-32. They just flew straight because they... For a long time. Right, because yeah. for a number of reasons. Yeah. But one of the major ones was because they really didn't know what worked and what didn't. Nothing really worked on that jet. Yeah. They were lucky to get that back. That was um, Richard Champion de Christmas, yeah. yeah. A very talented pilot, in fact. But um, that was the interesting thing about that airplane as well was they could not have had a more senior flight crew on that airplane. Because they were on a truck. They were being assessed Yeah, on the book's day, called QF-32. They? they were all being assessed by standards officers. And in fact, this is a good thing about someone who's running a practice because they're being standardized. Someone was watching what they did on that trip to standardize them, to make sure they were good enough to do that. It's, it's common. We are tested all the time in the military and pilots are tested all the time. So we're used to testing. And then you get to a stage where you test other people and hopefully you develop enough humility to not be an idiot to, you know, to do that. We don't let people who are idiots test other people, of course. They flew in a long, a long way away from Singapore. It was yep. a Trent 900 power plant that destroyed itself. It was an uncontained failure. It never happened before. And it went through a lot of the cables in the airplane and a lot of the systems didn't work. Because to react in that, that point is to make the situation significantly worse. So we're told to sit on your hands. When anything happens, sit on your hands. Let the emergency develop. You see what I mean? Let things play out a little bit. Just see what happens. Now you can respond to that emergency. This yep. is why divorces happen, by the way. Because infidelity happens and someone flashes up and says, I'm going to leave you. And they say things they don't mean. They post it all over social media. And then it's irrecoverable because they've reacted. Yes. The better thing to do, and it's painful, is to give it a couple of days and then you can respond in a mature fashion. We all know this. We just don't do it because we're children at heart. So this is really, don't let emotion control you, let rational thought control you. And there's a big issue with this as well. I've been thinking about this a lot because I'm very much into self-reflection and um, self-actualization now as I leave the military, <laughs> trying to work out who I am, taking it deep. Um, <laughs> Yeah, thanks for that. No, is, is this the military career equivalent of sort of living in your house but then doing it up really well just as you're about to sell it? Yeah, exactly. It is that, because that's what you do, yeah. So what the military does for you, out of interest, people might be interested in this, is it teaches you to run towards the sound of guns, which is unnatural. So cavemen will be fire in cavemen times. The military teaches you to run towards that fire. And we're really good at it, and we're very confrontational. And we don't back down from things. We, we challenge things, and we're interested in why someone might be doing this. When you leave the military, that doesn't work at all, as I'm finding out. 
and I knew this, of course, before. So what the military doesn't do is undo all that. Uh, and I'm now looking at how I sort of, how I un- undo all that sort of, that issue of, yeah, who we are and stuff. That doesn't answer your question there, does it? Of being confrontational? Is that what yeah, you mean really by the con- Just the understanding of who you are yeah. type part. I mean, the, the emotional context of what you're talking about with this react or respond. Yes. There is, um, we are very conformist, obviously. Yep. I'm really surprised the rest of the world isn't, but it makes so much sense. I don't know how anyone gets anything done on the outside, to be honest. I just, I find I'm learning that. It's awful, isn't it? I really like it. I don't turn up on time. You're lucky to have me here on time at the moment. I, I must admit, I've been on time for since the age of 12. This, this was the interview, because I'm not very good at being on time. This is the interview I was really like, the most concerned about being late to. Yes, exactly, yeah. And I must have, I was driving them four going, I'll get there whenever. I'll get there whenever, whenever. I think I hit, the, I hit it on the, on the on t- I think I got it before you did, didn't I? But I'm fascinated by how people survive outside without being on time. But more to the point, the self-reflection aspect of what I'm going through now is trying to work out who I am because I've been on squadrons with pilots. I never had a desk job. I voluntarily took myself into an office job part-time though. They still wanted me to fly and I understand why. That's why I flew part-time for the last year and a half. And so was I ever, I, I look at myself, was I ever a pilot or was I a pilot because I was reflecting other pilots around me? It's very interesting. I, some, it's very difficult sometimes to work out who you are when you've been in that environment for such a long time. That is digressing. That is our, that's segueing into something else. That's fine. It? That's. I do apologise. That that. We've only got the meeting room booked for two hours. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's a part two at some point. <laughs> Gonna um, leap on. <laughs> so, Sully's landing on the Hudson and I, I forget exactly where this conversation came up, but what really struck me about watching the deconstruction of that was, first of all, how calm he was. And his background was he was a fast jet pilot. Yeah, he was. It felt like maybe this was the moment he was on the planet to, to sort of, he was the right man for that right moment. Right. But to, to then put his jet up over one of the most densely populated areas... And then, was he criticised for not swinging it around and going back to LaGuardia? Yeah. Because he, they felt like he could make it, but he felt like the tolerances yeah. were too narrow. And if he didn't make it, it was going to be a really big disaster. It's, it's always easy to be criticised by people that weren't there. Yep. In the mili- in military flying... Yeah. If you were debriefing him, how would you debrief that? Well, I, I've done a service inquiry. I've done an accident investigation. In, I've done a, into a fatality of a friend of mine. So I'm, I'm well aware of of um, people that have had accidents um, and, and, and what we can gain out of it. Obviously, the person I did my one with would die, so we had to we ask him what he'd done. We had to work it out ourselves. But, and that was uh, one of the guys in the Red Arrows, unfortunately. So um, with Sully, he sat on his hands initially because it's a double-engine burst strike. He's got to look at the state of the jet. I fully appreciate that. But he would have, before he got airborne, have thought about that, that water as a potential landing strip. I remember reading something before about a guy who saved a woman. And I've been trying to find this online. And I can't find it. Um, I believe it was a London Underground station. A woman, was she pushed or she fell onto the tracks as a tube train came in? She may have been trying to kill herself. I don't know. This guy leapt straight onto the train tracks, covered her up. The train went over both of them. Yep. Saved her life. Yep. People say, that's amazing. This guy's amazing to have done that instinctively. But it's not instinctive. Because he would have thought about, he's, he's done that route, as a commuter, he'd he done that route for years and years. At some point, his brain would have thought about the gap beneath the train. He would have thought, even if it's in a subconscious level, what if? What pilots do is they don't do the subconscious, they do the conscious. So we pre-plan and before we get airborne, we have a full brief and the brief is the same every time. And this is where I think you can benefit as vets or in the medical world, by before you do an operation, you have a list 
of things. And we have a, a briefing list. And then we have a debriefing list as well. And you write it up on the board and you say, right, um, and we start with what's the aim of the sortie today? So Sully would say, right, the aim is to get airborne and, and fly these passengers or whatever. Take off, where are we going? And he would have talked about the runway they're going to use, the departure they're going to fly, how they're going to climb into the airways. And then they would have had a bit about emergencies as well. So and we challenge each other in debriefs. We say, okay, to the students, um, what are you going to do if uh, you have an engine fire? Right, if I have an engine fire, what I'm going to do is I'm going to shut down the throttle, I'm going to pull up, I'm going to get away from the ground, trade speed for heights. I'm going to have a look, see what engine caption says, look for smoke out the back. So he knows his drills. Uh, and we challenge, if you had a bird strike when you're down by Cardiff, what are you going to do? What Sully would have always been thinking, flying out of LaGuardia, I believe it was, yep. there's water around. If I lose engines at this height, and it would never happen before, double engine failure, it's going to happen at Heathrow at some point with the, the birds out there. It will happen at Heathrow. What am I going to do? What are my options? Well, if I've got a certain height and speed, I know I've got airfields accessible to me. If I don't have that, that jet's got to go in the water. And then you think, well, can it land on the water? Yes, it can. What are the actions from then on? Now, you might not be thinking about it every flight, but he has thought about it before. These things may sound astounding. One of the interesting things about PTSD as well for some soldiers, they come back from theatre, for example, having never fired around in anger. Yep. That can be just as damaging as having been engaged in a, in a huge firefight for someone who's trained their entire life to do this. And with pilots, sometimes that's very similar. I never had a major emergency ever. Yep. I was prepared for it every day. Yep. Every 60 days, I had a simulator full of emergencies. Yep. I never had anyone. I know guys who've jets caught fire. I know many guys have ejected. Yep. Um, I know, obviously, I've got many of my friends that have been killed over the years. It never happened to me, ever. And it got to the point towards the end, I was like, oh, come on, I'm stopping flying in a year. Something, something catch on fire. <laughs> why, why did it never happen to you? Have you ever thought about that? Okay, someone explained this to me recently, and he's a good friend of mine, and he's a pilot uh, in the Navy on helicopters. I'm going to interview him for my podcast soon, because he's, he's my best man at my wedding. But he did say something, and I don't know whether this is true. He said, good pilots don't have good stories. Now, a good pilot isn't necessarily the best handling pilot, but it is the pilot that prepares themselves for any future eventuality using this inversion technique, whatever it is. And I would be... The, the problem that pilots have as well is that we don't live in the now. This is exceptionally damaging, by the way, mentally. We live in the future. My wife hates this. So I'm always thinking of the sixth order effect. I've just written this essay about it as well. What happens if this happens? And if this happens, that might happen. And that's going to happen. Then that's possibly going to happen. Oh boy, that's a branch of crazy. You could just it, it keep does. going and down. It never ends. Yeah. It never ends. So... Right now, for example, I'm, I use meditation first thing in the morning for 20 minutes, whatever, and that's helping, but it never helped when I was in the service, but now my mind, I'm trying to calm it down a little bit. It's more of a mindfulness type thing. I talked about me taking apart watches and stuff, didn't I, just to try and get into the, the sort of minutiae to get my mind out of thinking. But I think because, and I know many, many good pilots, these people are just exceptionally prepared and there's nothing left to chance. Yep. And I think that's the thing whenever... I mean, I've had jets that have done some bad, I've hit birds and had to restart the old engine or whatever. Yep. I've, I've surged engines uh, once intentionally by accident, but it was intentionally, intentionally by accident. It was my own fault is what I meant. And I had to restart that engine uh, at 40 something thousand feet. That was a bit, that was a bit emotional. But um, all in all, we plan for these things. Jet flying, all flying is, is planned. The losing two engines on takeoff out of LaGuardia, that's, that is planned. It doesn't look like it's planned. Yeah, right. It's planned. But he had the answer as clear as day in his mind. And as also, if I spoke to Sully now, he would say the same thing to me. If the jet's going to crash, it's going to crash. If it's going to explode, it's going to explode. If you're going to die, you're going to die. There's not much you can do about it, really. The rest is just chatting. He hasn't got an ejection seat in that airplane. So he can sit on his hands, he can give himself 15 seconds. Have we got any engine at all? Any power at all? Because as soon as you start turning the aircraft, it's, it's falling out of the sky. It's yep. slow, it's heavy. Yep. You can't dump fuel, you can't chuck the passengers out. 
you know, the best thing to do at the moment for him was to do nothing, fully assess it. So he, he might turn the wrong way. You might think, I've got enough height to get to that airport out there. And he starts turning and then he thinks, no, I'm not with this fuel on board, not with double engine failure. I didn't realise we had double. Right. If I knew I had double engine failure, I would have gone left and landed in the water. And right. now he's going to put it in downtown Manhattan. And now he's not got that option anymore. No, now he's going to crash into a skyscraper. It's interesting that that's largely, but not through any particular planning, one of the things that I've always taught surgeons is if something goes wrong, and usually it involves quite a lot of bleeding, yeah. or it can do, yeah. is just you know stem the immediate bleeding and then just stop and take a beat and work out what the hell's yeah. going on next before you do anything silly. They put, um, in Afghanistan, it's interesting you say that, for the surgical teams, mm. the surgeons, um, they used to have one surgeon in there. And of course, the medical advances made in Afghanistan, Camp Bastion was huge. They used to have a helicopter, a Chinook they flew out, and in the back of it was kitted out as an operating theatre. Yeah. C-17s were the same. Yeah. The problem that they had was um, they'd bring these guys back in who'd been hit by IEDs, whatever, and one surgeon, and surgeons have egos. I yep. don't know why they do. Yep. I don't, they're just a surgeon. They've done a lot of training, and that's great, but they have egos. Maybe they need egos in order to survive, I don't know. Egos born out of um, uh, some kind of poor sense of self inferiority complex isn't it and you, you overshadow it by having an ego it's a bit weird I don't know why surgeons would need an ego but anyway not all surgeons by the way I know quite a few surgeons just saying I want to say that now but a surgeon would be in attendance at Bastion doing great things to save these young soldiers lives some of these soldiers who probably shouldn't have been saved as it were because they were so badly injured but some of the decisions they were making of course when they're operating on them was not done from a strategic perspective it was very tactical it was very close in it was very subjective it wasn't objective they just decided we're going to remove his leg yep. or we're going to save his arm. Yep. Some of those decisions weren't the best decisions at the time. You could argue that any decision made at that time in that construct is a good decision. And I fully appreciate what people are saying, but you could make a better decision if you had someone else next to you that you could lean on for some advice. So what they did then, they started putting two surgeons in. One surgeon would not operate. They just stand at the back of the room. And sometimes they'd say to the surgeon who was operating, are you sure you want to do that? And sometimes the other surgeon would look up, who's got the authority, by the way, the one operating has the authority and he can tell the other guy to shut up if he wants to. But now he's got a peer who's just saying to him, from a very remote perspective, mm. he's not in the blood, he's not in the guts. Yep. He's like, if you do that, that man will not have a leg. Yep. Or if you do that, that man's going to have an arm that might go um, septic and it might kill him. Yep. Have you thought about that second or third order? Because when we're close in, especially in families, especially in businesses... We don't get that time. No. Really face, close up to the, the cold face That's detail right. moments That's right. without pulling back to the big picture. That's something I look at when I recruit people. I'm looking for in certain roles. And with the veterinary role, with any technical role, you need people who are very detail focused. Yeah. How do you manage that in the Air Force? Because I, I imagine you've alluded to just how crazy you can go on detail in that, that service and in that planning phase. Is there an advantage or how do you foster a, a bigger picture thinking? Or is there a place for that? Like, how, what does that look like? Or is that someone further up the command order structure that has that bigger picture? And then there's just a component of the, the machine, another cog in the machine that's responsible for delivering the detailed piece, the yeah. surgeon's knife, as it were. Yeah, I thought you meant how do we deal with the brain, intensity of the brain when it comes to working at that level of detail and the granularity? Because that's through alcohol normally, isn't it? If we're honest. <laughs> And that, that obviously is getting a lot better. I must admit, it was pretty, pretty poor in the services before. Yeah, we do have levels, of course. So the boss on a squadron will fly less yep. than the, what we call line pilots. Yep. We have line pilots. On a Typhoon squadron, you might have 12 pilots, eight jets, for example, whatever it might be. And then you have flight commanders. I was a flight commander. So the three flights, 
I ran the tactical weapons element. I ran all the instructor training. I ran the standardization of the entire squadron. It was the biggest squadron in Northern Europe at the time. I think it still is. So I was a flight commander, so I'd fly less. I might fly four hours a month because I'm more strategically planning the future growth of my flight and the squadron. My line pilots might fly eight to 12 hours a month. My boss, you know, he's at the very top. He might fly maybe a couple of hours a month. Yeah. Sometimes more, sometimes less, depending on what's going on. Station commander, he's doing some really strategic stuff. He's not interested in, he won't fly all the sorties. He might fly a, a few sorties a month, if that, just to keep his hand in, to see what's happening in the sky. Very experienced pilot, obviously. Doesn't need to fly that much. Doesn't need to be that current because he's, he's got lots of and lots of hours anyway. So it, as you go up, and then of course, Chief Air Staff, uh, Stephen Hillier, of course, I did a sea drill with him recently where we bobbed around in the ocean, but then we just ejected, just me and him. He was going to go and requalify on the tornado in Scotland. Whether he should have done or not, I think it's a great thing to do. Is he a burden or, or contribution, of course? A very talented pilot anyway. And uh, he went and requalified on that. So he would not normally fly. He's yep. got other things to think about. He's got to look at the place of the Royal Air Force in comparison to the Navy and the Army and who's going to get the funds from the government and everything else. So right. that level of thinking is elevated. Um, mm. Yeah, I mean, from an individual level, as I did talk about the mental cognitive load of being that detailed, that does affect the marriage. Um, we, we used to do a lot more adventure training, of course, and that would take the guys out of that environment to sort of, you know, re-sort of energise them, I guess. This is it's not this is a, a small hop compared to some of my leaps and my questioning technique. But in veterinary medicine, I'm not going to use the word culture of, but we have a, a, a well, we're top of the professional tables for suicide, for committing suicide, and and I wonder as we've spoken prior to this interview and as we speak now, it's clear that, that there is a, a huge pressure on anybody in the military. I'm sure. But when you're dealing with things that are happening as quickly as they happen in your world, like the compression of time is something we experience technologically. Things happen now faster. An example in veterinary medicine would be we used to send off blood results and might get them back seven days later, and now we get them back. You know, we can get them back same 20 minutes later. So you've got that sort of compression of time. You've always had that in your industry to a certain extent because stuff gets close to you really, really quickly when you're moving fast, right? And so you're having to constantly work at a very high level of cognitive capacity. You know, your processing speeds have to be fast. Reflexes have to be sharp. But then with the detailed planning that's in there as well, add in the layer of, actually, there's a difference between what we're both doing. My job's about saving life. Your job's about, I mean, clearly there is an element of safety to it. It means about saving as many guys on your team, but killing as many on the other side. But add that in. How do you keep yourself sane with that? cognitive workload yeah no it's fine i'm expecting that we're going to get into that really to a certain extent i mean i wrote an essay about this a while back and that i want to say did well i didn't necessarily want it to do well because it was talking about mental health yeah because i saw a psychologist i mean my 2011 we have nemesis years my my bad year was 2011 my father died i was in afghanistan and i got crash moved out of afghan from the capital and 16 hours later i'm by his bedside in in portsmouth and he died about four days later because obviously we compartmentalize and stuff. I managed to bury him in eight days and get back out to war, you know, as we do, and, you know, because your father, crikey, you know. Yep. But then I came back after six months in Afghanistan. I was on the ground. And a friend of mine was killed in the Red Arrows, a guy called John Egan. I was sent to do the service inquiry, which was wrong, and it was acknowledged to be wrong uh, yep. later on. I don't know, I did a service inquiry for about eight months. And during that time, I was supposed to fly one of their aircraft to do a bit of testing, but I gave it to another Red Arrow guy called Sean Cunningham on a very misty morning. And he walked out to the airplane and, and was killed three minutes later as well. So. I had this year and then the following year, 2012, I lost my first students in a 
incident, it wasn't an accident, nothing's an accident, everything has a cause. In an incident up on the Murray Firth, up in Lossiemouth in two tornadoes, um, there were three of my friends that were killed up there. So that takes time to recover. And I was on a squadron that was nascent, it was being built, it had a very heavy civilian contracted element that didn't fully understand the nuances of flying training. I was a flight commander trying to keep people alive. And eventually in 2014, I managed to shut the squadron down for six months by bringing an external standardized safety audit. And they said, this squadron's going to be unsafe. We need to do something about that. In fact, the boss shut the squadron down for six months. Those are difficult years. I ended up seeing um, a psychologist, I believe it was, I was a psycho- yeah, psychotherapist of some sort. There was a military based one down in Telford. I went to see him just to really get away from the squadron. Yep. I'm not convinced that that was that useful because he said, take 30 days off. He can do anything. He can send you to another squadron. Yep. Take 30. And the only reason I went there was because another flight commander of the squadron was having similar issues. And he'd seen this guy and said, go and see this guy. So I saw him twice. He said, take 30 days off. And of course, I never did. Because we're not weak, are we? No. It's very interesting. If people are interested in mental health, there's a great book called um, Mental Health. Oh, no, it's called Depression, The Curse of the Strong by a guy called Tim Cantifer. It's very down to earth. He's had some abuse about it. I really liked it. And he talks about why it's strong people that have mental health issues. Because we, we cope. And we never... Some people don't understand. If, if they can't do something, they just don't do it. Right. Other people do it. So in effect... Mental health, I'm not saying it's a problem within the service. I think it will be more it's, so. It's a problem everywhere, you're right. Um, well, if, you're not, yeah, if you're not looking after people properly, I think there was an inadequate management from a boss level on that particular squadron at that time, yep. which is why we had so many guys that were struggling to perform at the levels they were supposed to perform at safely. And we were going to have an accident, incident. We were going to have a crash. There's no so choice about it. We're there in, not in stretch mode, but in panic. They're in, into they're panic, in panic mode. mode. We're all in panic mode. And yep. what, my men were coming to me and saying, look, we're going to have an accident. We're going to have a crash. Yep. And we had a near miss in air combat, a, a very serious near miss. There was an Australian pilot in the back and the Australian got out and said, what you guys are doing here is wrong. This is not acceptable. And that was someone from the Australian Air Force, yeah. which nudged us all. Yeah. I'm not saying nothing was done about it. We did something about it at the time. I was training on the airplane at the time. But then quickly that got eroded because you needed output. So we needed to get students trained because there were, there were goals, there were financial goals set for this civilian company to get these people out. But by having financial settings for a student output and none for instructor output, you still have to train instructors. We didn't have the necessary amount of instructors trained up to process the amount of students. And that was why people were in their panic zone because they're flying too many times. It was not safe. Without and, uh, the guidance, support, Yeah, feedback. absolutely. And of course, I'm flying as well, trying to help these guys out. I'm not there to oversee it. I'm not there to take step back and take a strategic approach and to make sure that the men are, are going home at the end of the day and not, you know, ranting at their wives all evening. Yeah. I expect a lot of them are going home and having a few beers. I was, most certainly. And I had a problem with alcohol. I stopped drinking for 13 months last year yeah. just to really put that to bed. I drink again now, but I'm more, I'm, I've got a control, like a total control thing now. Yeah. But at the time, that's where I went. You know, I went straight into the alcohol, pretty yeah. heavy, really. And especially as I was working a desk job primarily as well, that allowed me to do that. What were the most important lessons you took away from the book you mentioned? For me, one of the things was to be able to say, you know, I'm not, I'm not feeling great. I'm not... Yeah. It's very difficult because we don't... In a broken leg, you can see a broken leg. Mental health... My sister's a psychiatrist and she... Um, with the NHS and she says... It's a chemical imbalance in the brain. We all know this. There's some work going on to say that it might not be the case. But at the moment, the current thinking is a chemical imbalance in the brain, which means it's a physical illness. Mental health issues are physical illness. Unless there's schizophrenia and some other stuff that... You know, right, but right. What we all know is depression is a physical illness, which means that we can treat it and we should be able to 
say that a lot of it is about removing that stress, moving that panic from that individual. Yeah. Which is why the doctor said to me, take 30 days off. Yes. That wouldn't have helped. I've got to go back there. Yeah, of course. I just sit around for 30 days panicking about having to go back into that flight school. Yeah, exactly. Um, so it wouldn't necessarily have helped, but you can move people, of course. So for me, what I took away from that book was to be able to say, to be able to be open with yourself and say, yeah, I think I'm, I'm having a bit of an issue with this. I better take the pressure off myself. And that might be, say you're struggling in vet school or something, it might be trying to defer a year or something, or, or maybe, you know, whatever it might be, it's very individual. Um, it's very difficult, I think, to, uh, personally, I'm not a massive fan of counsellors because you sit there and a counsellor will listen to you and I get that. I prefer going to more of a coach. I do coaching for people now. I'm not saying come to me, but I, I like the coach and mentor aspect. I do believe that we flourish when we have guidance from someone else because we're accountable. Yes. And we're shit at being accountable to ourselves. I don't know whether I can swear on your podcast, but we are rubbish <laughs> at it, aren't we? Yeah, anybody that has listened to me for any length of time, oh, really? they know that that's not even in the, the wheelhouse <laughs> of swearing. So I do believe in accountability and the book was um, very good in, in just saying that, you know, this is something that happens and it's going to happen more in society with the, the way social is and that we spoke about before the podcast started. I mean, everyone is, you look at Insta and all the filters and stuff. It's this filtered attention economy we live in. It's very sad. It's not a nice time. I believe I'm a very analog guy. You mentioned that earlier as well. I have a, a very large social presence, but I have to, I can be on that all day. I can be on LinkedIn on my website. I can be on Facebook running my, my group I run. I can be on that all day but it breaks you it breaks you so you, you need to just literally my sister she phoned me up in a massive panic she had a, a bowel depression and she said um can you sort my facebook out and i had to mute all of her friends so she's got the little she's got some kids so she's got the groups that she's in and she loves those groups and uh, she keeps chickens and all sorts of things which she loves but none of her she hasn't got to see what a success her friends lives are because we know they're not successful it's just a picture we now view life through a filtered lens of bullshit. It's sad though, isn't it? Absolutely. It's not real. 100% it's not, real. not real. My wife's got a little MD midget in bright red and uh, it's in Oxford at the moment. I mean, we're going to take it up to, we bought a house, a new house, having left the military. We're going to take it up there and there's something about driving around that little car because it rattles, doesn't it? It falls apart, the whole thing. You know, MD midget, cracky. But that's really tangible and real. There's something very um, tactile about the whole experience. It's from 1968 for crying out loud. It's amazing. I... In the last few weeks, you've really hit on something very profound that I've experienced, and that is the level of anxiety that I experience in my life is, is certainly it's directly proportionate to the amount of time spent, not necessarily even on social, yeah. but just in an on or on a device. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And the antidote for me is to have my face in a book. Like, I'm never happier than if I've got my nose in a good book where I can feel the pages and I'm in, and enjoying that book. And that, that, if I think back to what I've loved since I was a child, like when I was a kid, it was a Doctor Who book. Like really? they were the only books I would ever read yeah. cover to cover. Now, you know, whatever book it is about business or about, about people, but an, a good book will do more for my mental health and well-being than I just about anything agree. else. I do agree. There are some beautiful books out there that we don't... I'll tell you what I went through a phase of. Ordering books on Amazon and then not reading them. <laughs> I felt better about it. I've got all this knowledge. And I yeah. will read it at some point and it sat there not being read. And I've got a lot of great books now to read. Um, yeah, there's some things I'm reading at the moment which I'm really kind of inspired by. And some people write so beautifully. I mean, I am very much interested in writing beautifully and connecting with people. And every time I write, I review the responses and I look at the debrief that I give myself and I'm like, why did that connect? Why did it not connect? And some books I can read and just think, 
you know, this is fantastic. And you, I tell you when you know you've read a good book is you're in a bookshop and you sit on the shelf and you pick it up again. You've got it at home. <laughs> you've got it. You know what I mean? It's on your phone or something. But you know, they reckon there's a correlation, by the way, between um, your anxiety levels increasing just by having your phone in, in the same room as you. So what I've started to do now is leave my phone outside the bedroom. It sounds silly. Because you don't, you don't want to be anxious when you're asleep. Your body needs to recharge. The power of sleep is something I'm, I'm, doing, I'm doing a lot of reading about now, along with the meditation, along with nutrition and stuff. I mean, these small incremental things we do to ourselves make massive gains. The whole Dave Brailsford, Team Sky incremental type thing. People don't, they, they might do one or two of these things. But one, one of the things pilots know is to layer these things up. And that's the way you get the best gains from this. So I have my phone outside the room now. I've, I bought this alarm clock. It's, it's only 20 quid off eBay. I'm not overly convinced it's brilliant. But it, it lights up gradually in the morning. You set it for half seven, half an hour before, it starts getting brighter. And sometimes, I must admit, I've got to work out the settings on it because I'm rubbish. I haven't even looked at that. I sometimes wake up this burning, wait, wait, <laughs> this burning wait, wait, in my wait, face. Wait, wait, I've got to... Right, what so, am I doing? So talking about... You, like you've flown some of the, the best jets in the country and you just told me you don't read the instructions yeah I don't read instructions <laughs> who needs that I'm above instructions I tell you that's where the ego comes in oh crikey it takes too long we should be able to figure it out so I'll ask you one more question and maybe we can move into the shorter form because I know you've got your day to get on with here but there's a parallel here between your stage and your career probably mine and mine as well and there's a lot of people who have been in, in veterinary practice for longer than I have who, one of the trends, let me tell you, one of the trends that's happening in our space right now is corporatization. And so a lot of independent practices are being bought by big groups funded by private equity. And so guys that are in, well, sometimes not at the end of their career, which is usually a 40, 50 year career in veterinary medicine. So 60 plus retiring, that's fine. But there's a lot of guys who are 40, 50 plus retiring and all they've ever known is veterinary medicine. And so I think one of the big challenges for us in the veterinary space is what is going to happen to all these guys who've now made quite a lot of money who now have nothing to do because they don't want to work no. for the corporate, no. you know, the corporates. And so the, that's the backdrop to the question. Here comes the question in, in typical Dave fashion. You've finished a career in the military and have risen to a high level and now on, can I use the phrase, civilian street. How you're managing being away from that? Because I imagine that can be a stressful thing as well, to not be doing the thing that, that you, know, you always wanted to do, the thing that gave you purpose up until a yeah. stage in your career. How do you manage that? And what advice could you have? Like, maybe talk us through your routine for managing that. You mentioned meditation and some of the things you're doing to sort of manage that. Can you put it together in a, a practical toolkit sort of way, if that's not yeah. too trite to think to ask? Yeah. Men will kill themselves, we know that. Yep. And um, we're pretty good at doing that. Yep. Uh, but actually, if we get to mid-40s without doing it, then there's every chance we won't. Yep. So that's quite a good thing. It's not a bad thing at all. That's um, encouraging to hear. I'm only 42. Well, so you've got three years. Just give me a call. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're right. I mean, we had one of our pilots kill himself January last year, actually. A guy who'd flown out, very talented guy, Typhoon pilot. He'd been on exchange with F-16. And he worked in, in the town I work in. And the reason I don't say the town I work in, just for an operational security aspect, I don't work in that town anymore, but it, I was there for a while. But he um, went home one lunchtime and hanged himself. Now, and a very you know, incredible pilot. And people said, you couldn't, you couldn't see it coming. No, of course you can't, because he hides it. That's what people do. I realise it's, uh, it's definitely... And the reason is, it happens when you... Men need responsibility. 
It's a fact. We do. If you go back to the cavemen, saber-toothed tiger thing, we used to have a cave. We, our responsibility was going out hunting a buffalo or a mammoth, bringing it back to, to Mrs. Cavewoman and the, and the cave kids, and then rolling the rock across the thing, saying, look, I've got a mammoth for you. That would last a few days. I will build the fire. I will look after my family. When you don't have that responsibility, and believe me, I had that responsibility for a very long time in the Royal Air Force, flying for 20 years straight, and now I don't have that responsibility. I don't have children. I have a wife that we live apart at the moment because she's a business. And so I was, you know, as I said, a work in town. I've got no responsibility. And of course, you love it for about a week. And then you think, where's, no one values me. No one values anything I do. It's very damaging. Very damaging indeed. You mentioned purpose. And I was going to jump on that. You, we all need a purpose. Everyone needs to be valued in life. Even women can get it a lot from the, the kids, the, the family. And the, it's there. It's kind of a natural thing almost for women that have children. Men need something, and this is why we have hobbies and interests and build stuff and, and we go online and we build our little empires and things like this, and I get that. I currently run a group. What I've done is I've come out of the service and I've said for the next year, I'm going to contribute to people. And I, I will have to earn money at some point, but right now for the next two months, the Air Force is still paying me whilst I resettle. It does that. My pension will give me about £600 a month or something, and that's not index linked. That's going to go down. Everyone thinks the Air Force pension's great. It's not great. It's better than most, but I have to work again and I will because I want to. So I started a group called um, the 12 Months of the Awesome Warrior. It's on the back of my website, the Fast Ship Performance, which I put the writing on. And this is to give, there's about 500 people in the group and it's to give young men and young women the tangible kind of content that we teach our students that they come through to learn how to be fighter pilots and bomber pilots it gives them everything apart from actually putting them in the airplane so I, I use the same diagrams I talk about the same language I use analogies and that keeps me feeling that I still have some sense of self-worth yeah and if I lose that I will go into a dark place pretty quickly so I also do a lot of speaking I go around schools and I go around um, university air squadrons their training core units if I can I have to use a lot of fuel to get these places so um um, schools though I, you know, I don't charge for any kind of public sector I was down at NHS recently in Bristol um, I was talking to the radiology department down there I spoke for about an hour and a bit and then helped them out kind of reform their again procedures they didn't have any defined procedures they differ from trust to trust we're looking at how we can put some kind of automation into that really and some understanding about practices and, and care so I'm involved in that sort of thing. I've got a book that I'm writing. That I need, need to really concentrate on that sort of decision-making in, in dynamic situations. I'll turn this, this program I'm running for the next 12 months, I'll turn that into some kind of book. We know books don't pay. It's not about that, really. I want people to... It's interesting. It's like we could all say we want lots of money, but I know people with lots of money who are very sad and very unhappy, and I don't want that. I want to be able to deliver some kind of tangible value and in a way see that people are doing well with it. I've got pilots all over the world in India and uh, looking at the map on the wall now where was a guy contact me Romania one of the young guys contacted me from so I mentor these people in different air forces and our own air force of course I get a great deal back from from doing that and I need to do things like that really I think we all need to so if you and it's great isn't it leaving selling out a practice and having all that money never having to work again people like us can't do that you just can't you think you can I'll go and buy a yacht and I'll sail around. And I remember someone saying to me, if you win the lottery and you couldn't figure out what to do every day, then you shouldn't, you don't deserve the money. I wouldn't want that money because I'm, I'm an idiot with it. I, I've got nothing to buy because I still have the same brain. I'll still be sat in a corner feeling sorry for myself and, and helpless and slightly depressed sometimes and with a penchant for going and drinking everything alcoholic around. You know, we know we'll do that. So for me, my happiness and internal contentment comes from the delivery of something of value to other people that can benefit and see their lives develop in a better way. And so that's the bigger picture why question. Tactically, what things do you do to keep yourself 
mentally together. Yeah, fine. Okay, so I uh, try and have a morning routine and this doesn't work for everyone. I do believe in seasons as well. If you're waking up at five o'clock in, in the morning in winter, it's going to be miserable because the first three hours of your day are in darkness. So maybe sleeping a bit longer in winter. I know we all got jobs to go to. I fully appreciate that. But in summertime, really get up when the birds get up. It's a fantastic time of day. It really sets your day. It's very interesting. And if you do it again and again and again, you become a more happy person. You just do. You just do. I try and go to bed a bit earlier as well. But that can shift, of course, seasonal, as we said. Nutrition-wise is, is exceptionally important. I try and eat less meat now, and I'm very much into vegetables. And I'm not saying green smoothies. I was into that, the juicing bit for a bit. But I think you just may as well eat the vegetables. It's fine. But... You know, let's let's be honest. What we put in our body does make us who we are, especially in a mental sense. I don't take supplements as such anymore. What do I take in winter? Zinc and magnesium, things like just small things that you might kind of. But not, I don't really. You know, vitamin D. Take a supplement of that over winter, definitely. I went to Afghanistan. It was dark most of the time, and I loaded up with about ten hundred, or was it ten thousand units of that a day? You can overdose on that though. You get a bit of an irony taste in the mouth. Be careful, but it's fine. Stop taking it. You'll be right. So yeah, vitamin D is important, and then try and stay away from social as much as as i can i just use in bursts get in use social get out again same with the television set stop reading the news why are we still reading the news stop reading things that are negative why we why do we do that i'll tell you why we do it do you want me to tell you cool yes you, you, you would love this this is a bugbear of mine the amygdala part of the brain where yep. motivation and everything else is it's more attracted to negative things and positive things i've written about this before there's a reason for it because it kept us alive. It's a fear. Yeah. Before we go out hunting, we're thinking twice as much about the saber-toothed tiger than we are about catching the woolly mammoth type thing. Because that's, that's terminal. That's final. That, that saber-toothed tiger, that's the end. If I don't eat the woolly mammoth, no, I might be able to get him tomorrow. Yeah. I might be able to steal someone else's woolly mammoth. But that tiger, I don't want that catching me with the long teeth and everything, you know. And it's, it's a slightly nasty attitude. So um, I'm going to skip the tiger thing, but I'm thinking about it more, the negative more than the positive. It's a default human trait. Newspapers know this. That's why the headlines are negative. That's why the BBC News headlines are negative. That's why there aren't any good news stories because the news, good news stories won't sell. So you're poisoning yourself. You need to literally look for happy, positive people and happy, positive content, and you'll be happy and more positive. That's, um, I might put a trademark on that, happy and positive content or something. I like it. No, no, that's great. Um, so we're, we're actually segueing into our quickfire questions, which is really nice. So what's the best piece of advice you've, it can be the best piece of advice you've either given or received. And I'm going to flip it around and ask you what the worst piece of advice you've ever given or received as well. Let's start with the best first. So I, I saw, and it's, I'll give you a listen to something really good here. There's um, a TED talk out by a girl called Caroline McHugh. She does a talk about I think it's called The Art of Being Yourself. It's like 27 minutes, whatever. She runs a, an agency where she, she goes and talks to politicians and presenters and stuff. And I saw this and I, I showed it to my wife a couple of days ago and she was quite emotional because she realizes that we don't know who we are, by the way. We don't. We, we think we have to be many things to different people. I realized that I spent 20 years in the military because my dad, at the age of nine, who was a Royal Marine, and his father was a military guy, took me down to careers office at the age of nine or whatever and said, this guy's going to be a Royal Marine when he's, you know... That's, and so I end up now at the age of 43, probably living in existence that my father wanted me to live. I recognize that. I'll deal with that. It'll take a while, maybe a few beers. You know what I mean? I'll work through it. But it's interesting. So we are the product of other people's uh, ideas of us. Yet when you're, and this is this, this the woman says in this video, when you're under the age of four, or if you're over the age of 80, you really don't give a fuck. But when you're in the middle years, you do care because you want to be liked. Now, if you're not liking yourself... You need to be liked by others. So the key here is you need to learn to love yourself. 
And that means that even if you make mistakes, even if you're a bit overweight, whatever it might be, love that. Because we'll go through, we've only got, I've got another, what, 40 years left if I'm lucky. If I'm lucky. And the way being thrown around in that jet for the last 20 years and everything, and the way everything's stretched inside, most pilots, you know, they don't make it past 65, let's be honest. So really, I've got another 22 years to do something incredible. That makes me happy, and I believe I've brought some kind of value to some other people, if I can possibly do that. And that'll be an absolute blessing. So I'm really trying to understand who I am and to like me, even if some things that I do aren't perfect right you know what i mean because they're not i'm you know they're not they're not that great but I'm, I'm understanding that you can't be great at everything and you just that's the best piece of advice i would give is um we need to start finding things and finding ways of liking us as people and what's the worst piece of advice you've ever given or received um, when people talk about follow your passion i wrote an article about this because one of my students said i'm not passionate about flying anymore that's a millennial thing if you look at when the word passion started taking traction, it was around about, oh, where was it? Mid, well, mid to late 80s, I think it was, something like that. Just as these millennials were in their sort of like 10 or whatever it was. or It was, at, yeah, they must have been a bit late in that. So, um, and they heard from their parents who'd had a very good innings, by the way, because that whole generation, they thought, well, I've got the car, I've got the house. You can do whatever you want. And so they said, follow your passion. And of course, a lot of people did. And sometimes your passions don't pay. Passion is fleeting. Passion is something you need to develop within yourself, as you go through life, I'm not passionate about flying anymore. I was when I first started. It doesn't mean I won't ever get in an airplane again, but I'm really happy to take a break. I'm passionate about helping other people understand who they are so they can go out and influence other people and do better in their workspace. That's what I coach people about. That's what we mentor about. So for me personally, I, I think that advice is really damaging to follow your passion. Find your purpose. Yes. yes. Find your purpose because there is a purpose in life and that will change and develop. But your passion is something that is... Passion is an affair. It's brief. It's fleeting. It's like a flicker of flame. It comes and goes. A purpose, that's something that will stay there for a while. That's a whole other hour of podcast yeah, right be. there. It would it? be indeed, yeah. So if you, you to recommend one book, a book you could give to anybody, what book would it be? So I recommend lots of books, but I won't. I recommend one. And it won't be to everyone's taste. Now, I realize when you put Fighter Pilot on your website, a lot of people won't listen to this podcast. That's fine. Fighter Pilots are characterized as, um, obviously, people... I think sometimes people think, I don't want to listen to a Fighter Pilot because I'll feel more inferior, and that's not the case. Deeply flawed individuals, yeah. Fighter Pilots, deeply, deeply flawed in many, many, many ways. Don't think that you're worse than Fighter Pilots because that's not the case whatsoever. There are some fantastic people out there, and I'm supremely jealous of their skill sets, and they have nothing to do with military aviation. But the book I would say go and read is by it's called um, Extreme Ownership by a guy called Jocko Willink and um, Leif Babin. These two are U.S. Navy SEALs, and I've, I've spoken to Jocko Willink on Twitter when he first started his Twitter account. Deeply impressive individuals, don't get me wrong. And the reason I'd say read this book as opposed to any others, and if you want any more, I'll, I'll give you some for the show notes or whatever, but is, it is all about taking ownership of you and not trying to lay the blame at anyone else. There is no future development in your life by blaming other people, which is why, incidentally, we don't blame people in the Air Force. Yep. Notice how we've tied that up quite neatly in this whole thing. It really says that if you're overweight, it's your fault. If um, your relationship's bad, it's your fault. If uh, your relationship with the kids is bad, it's your fault. If your job's going badly, it's your fault. And once you understand that, something amazing happens. You realize that you can solve it. You're responsible for it. You're responsible for all these things in your life that aren't going great. Well, that's, that's a great thing then, isn't it? Because now there's one person in the world that can do something about it, and that's you. So I think when that message is fully understood, you really see some tangible kind of change in individuals. Okay, so if you can give yourself one, I, I don't know, maybe you're going to 
don't know what you're going to say to this one. Maybe it'll be the same as what you've already said, but let's see what, see what comes out. If you give yourself one piece of advice, and look back in the midst of time, so pre-pilot, you're yeah. graduating with your engineering degree. Yeah. What would that piece of advice be at graduation day? At 20, 24? Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I knew I wanted to go into the military. I failed everything, by the way. My, I don't know, you know my history is failure. My, I failed my A-levels, I got two E's and an N. Um, I failed a GCSE prior to that. English literature, strange enough. They said I couldn't write, and now obviously I'm writing two books. Weird outcomes around. I'm not saying anything against teachers. It was my, completely my fault. I was very lazy, got um, all into the sort of smoking pot type thing when I was a young kid in, in Portsmouth. Uh, failed my, my H&D, failed the first year of my degree, and eventually the Navy turned me down and rejected me, and I had to go away and prove to them I was, I was good enough. So the way I did that was through hard work. There is no way anyone is going to do anything great in this world without a significant amount of sacrifice and hard work. There's no shortcut. I've looked for it. I've read everything. There's nothing out there that tells me anything other than, well, things will. They will tell you, yes, you know, you need to find the right mentors and then everything will change for you. It won't. It's the hard work. It's the work you put in. And the work you put in when other people are either asleep or watching TV or it's just the graft, unfortunately. Especially in flying training, it's an absolute pain. It takes five years for crying out loud. And a lot of people don't want that. They don't know that when they first try and do it but that's the thing if you really want something you'll have to put that hard work in and it is worth it because you develop as an individual even if the thing you get at the end of it isn't everything you you thought about you've learned so much in that working but i believe you really can get to almost any way you want by putting the hours in it's the the instant gratification that's the culture culture. because we're told people are told to follow their passion they're going to be all right it's not true. The book title just jumped into my mind. It's one I've just finished reading called The War of Art. Okay, I haven't read that. Absolutely amazing book. Just exactly what you said. Stephen really? Pressfield. Okay. Pressfield. Yeah. What a great book. I, I think it'd be the good book I would give most people right now. So, Tim, I'm like, we're pushing right up on, on time. I could literally sit here and talk to you all day. So very, very grateful for your time, for your insight. Are there any final thoughts that you would like to leave for my listeners? Yeah. Okay. So something I'm thinking about a lot now, I'm happy. This is why we should discuss this sort of thing is I realize through my own choice, because I completely embrace this, that I've done, I've been in the military for the last 20 years, as I said, and that's something I did. And I realized what conformity does now is it, it really restricts or negates any kind of effort to create at all. Conformity doesn't allow you to create. So I realised, having come out of the military, or when I was leaving the military over the last year, that there's a lot of creativity within all of us. Yet we don't, sometimes you don't know it, because we're busy doing something else. And through creativity and that expression, I think there's a, a real kind of, you get a real understanding of who you are, even if no one reads what you write, or even if no one watches what you put out on YouTube or Insta or, or whatever it might be. Or, or I said to myself, I said, well, where's my challenges going to come from in the future? And I said, well, to get some challenges. And so I'm going to try and be one of the like, greatest speakers in the UK. I want to go and motivate people. I know I need to slow down when I say, but here's the thing as well, by doing all these things, you lose authenticity and people know that. So when you go and prescribe and you go and go to Toastmasters and you come up with all this, you stand on stage and you come across as false. So there is a definite requirement to be yourself. But also I would say to a lot of people, really try and do something creative. My wife just re-upholstered a chair. She loves it. It's a chair. She comes back and sees, I love it. It's brilliant. It's got this like um, this kind of cloth on it. It's beautifully deep red. She found it in a junk shop, re-upholstered it, learned on, on YouTube. But she comes back and she sees that chair the whole time. 
It's just a chair. No one cares. It's a chair. It's amazing though, isn't it? That when we are creative, we tend to go back to those things we've created. If I repair a watch or whatever, it's a very geeky thing to do, but it just keeps my mind from going mad. I go back and I look at that watch again. It's just a little watch I've just repaired. I just go back and look at it again. I find that so interesting how you can get so much from just creating something so small. That's, that's the only thing I would give personally. You know, I get the same thing from doing a bit of DIY in the house. These things are, take our brain away from all this stuff that's trying to sap our, all the social, all, the, all these things that just, I don't know, they just tie us up mentally, don't they? Sounds like living in the analog world is probably a healthy thing for us all to be doing a little bit yeah, more of. I think of. you're right. I think you're right. So if people want to read more, and I strongly suggest you do, Tim writes, I love his writing, I love his podcasts, often, as you might have gathered, goes deep, very honest, very forthright. I think there's a lot to be learned from this gentleman. Um, Tim, where can people reach you best? And where would you like them to reach out to you? And also, you know, your, your, really your course is titled and tilted in the title towards the warrior. Uh, we're all w- warriors in our own way, fighting our own battles, most of them internal. I think there's a lot of value for anyone in any audience. And you're using a lot of the analogies and the storytelling from the armed services. Are you targeting only people in that sphere or can leaders at any level get something from, from the material of the course you're teaching? Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm not targeting anyone in the military to come and do my, my 12 months. This is a free program on Facebook. Some people don't use Facebook. I had to start on Facebook just because it was accessible. It's called the 12 months of the awesome warrior. Warrior is a term the Americans use to describe every single member of their armed services. And this is why people in the American armed services really, really want to be, and are really, really respected for being in the armed services. We do it differently in the UK. We don't really embrace that, unfortunately. Our social media content and everything for the armed forces in the UK is poor. Uh, the Ministry of Defence is poor. The Navy is doing quite well, actually, but the Air Force is very poor socially, which is why I started my website, Fastship Performance, to talk about flying and the problems associated with flying. I've done it for the last three, three or four years. So fastshipperformance.com is um, the place to go to, for my site, and that's where the writing is. And if you want if you want me to come and speak or um, you want to come and listen to some of the podcasts or read some of the writing, it's all there. The 12 Months with Awesome Warrior is a group that you can join at any time. It runs for 12 months through 2018. Uh, we've just done Positively January, which is a great success, using tangible methods, such as like an elastic band on the wrist to, to remind you to, to develop a positive mindset. A lot of people get a lot out of that. We're in lead turn February now. These are all things that fight pilots need to have in their armory. Positivity, because if you don't go into an engagement positive, you will die. There's no two ways about it. You have to believe you can win. Lead turn is a term we use for taking early action on an anniversary, and I explain that quite well. And then March is an interesting one because it's, it's called Sanctuary March. It's about understanding who we really are. It's about disengaging from fights, air combat fights, but also when you are fighting air combat engagement and you fly into a cloud or you can't see the other person because it's very hard under G, someone will call Sanctuary and we'll all go to a different height Therefore, we deconflict with each other. And so Sanctuary March is about knowing when to go to that different height. When, as we spoke about earlier, when to step out of that workplace to keep yourself mentally sound. Where are you going to go? What are you going to use to develop your, your mindset to be resilient against these things? How can you take a break? Because we burn ourselves out. Because we're those. that's why you've got your vets killing themselves because they don't know when to take that break. That's why some pilots will do the same thing. So that's where I'd go. Um, Tim at Fast Performance, you can email me there as well. And I, especially if you want to talk about alcoholism or mental health issues, I do a lot of um, talking about that with people, especially in high performance industries. And uh, on Twitter, it's Tim Davies underscore UK. 
Twitter is a pain. I don't know how uh, Twitter, here's me talking about getting off social. I scroll through Twitter. Our brains go from one thing to another going through Twitter, don't they? It's when you go through your Facebook feed. That's not healthy. They're just toxic dumps, (laughs) aren't they? There's nothing healthy about that whatsoever. Why do we still use Twitter? I don't even know why we do that. Those are the main places anyway, but... Yeah, I answer every single email anyone ever sends. So from all over the world, it takes a while, but I'll get back to you. Brilliant. Tim, thank you so much for your time. I really mean it. Uh, it's been a valuable conversation. I hope that you all have gotten a lot out of that. Really, thank you very much. And um, keep on rocking, keep on publishing, keep on writing. It's great, great stuff. You. Thank you. Thank you so much. Very kind. Cheers. So folks, just me again. I hope you really enjoyed that episode. It was such fun to record it. My thanks to Tim for being a good sport and giving me his time. Now, before you go, two things. Number one, if you're enjoying Blunt Dissection, please don't forget to leave me a review on iTunes. The reviews really push me up the rankings and mean I get better guests, more listeners, which is all good for everybody. And also don't forget about the show sponsor today, which is my VetEx graduate mentoring community. If you're a practice owner and would like to learn more about that, go to drdavenickel.com forward slash VetEx. Until next time, please be safe, be well, and be happy. This is Dave and Blunt Dissection saying goodbye. Goodbye.